Success is born out of luck. It's awareness of mind that takes advantage of that opportunity. You will all be confronted with opportunity. You must take advantage of it. Because if you don't take advantage of your opportunity, you'll never realize your dreams. To escape the world that I was born into, to start a new world. So I started pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. It's about self-belief at whatever cost. You have to make the emotional and the personal investment to make your dreams come true. Winston Churchill once said, to each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on their shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing unique to them and fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. I present this quote to you because I've been thinking a lot lately about happiness and regret, really. Since getting floaters, happiness has taken on a whole new level of importance because there are times where it can start to feel more and more out of reach. Especially when you start to realize that even the simple things that used to bring you joy, you know, going for a walk, watching TV, reading a book, because of floaters, they uh, no longer seem to bring that same level of joy. It can make you wonder sometimes what you're fighting for. What's the point? Is true happiness even something I can ever fully feel again? Because that's what's behind this push for a cure, isn't it? To feel happy again. So if you're anything like me, you try to make adjustments. You try new hobbies, you try stress relieving techniques, maybe you try to make money or anything to try to fill the void or even just distract yourself. And maybe some of these things work a little bit, but sometimes you still feel like there's something missing and you just know it's not the same. So what does that mean? Does that mean that happiness is no longer an option for us? Is it just a lose-lose scenario? My opinion? Not at all. In fact, I believe it's just the opposite. The problem is, I think most of us are searching for happiness in the wrong place. Consider this article I came across recently on Medium by Darius Faro. He offers a very interesting perspective about how our constant pursuit of happiness is actually distracting us from finding something that feels 10 times better. The article reads, for the longest time, I believe that there is only one purpose of life, and that is to be happy. Why else go through all the pain and hardship? But here's the thing, how do you achieve happiness? Most things we do in life are just activities and experiences. You're not creating anything, you're just consuming or doing something. What really makes me happy is when I'm useful, when I create something that others can use, or even when I create something I can use. For the longest time, I found it difficult to explain the concept of usefulness and happiness. But when I recently ran into a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, the dots finally connected. Emerson says, the purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well.
it comes down to this. What are you doing that's making a difference? You don't have to change the world or anything. Just make it a little bit better than before you were born. Being useful is a mindset, and like any mindset, it starts with a decision. That decision is key. To have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. That's quite a different goal, isn't it? Because let me ask you this, at the end of your life, what are you really going to regret? Is it the vacation you never got to go on, the TV you never bought, the new house maybe? Or will it be that person you never helped? Or missing out on an opportunity that presented itself to you that you weren't ready for? When it really comes down to it, wouldn't the latter be much harder to deal with at the end of your life? Wouldn't those regrets haunt you? Which tells you something. Happiness is not derived from what we consume. It's derived from what we produce. Sometimes we have to force it. Sometimes we have to be ready for it. Sometimes it comes down to sheer luck and coincidence. But luck means nothing unless you're able to capitalize on it. So we have to stay ready because if an opportunity came our way, a major one, let's say a possible cure to floaters, how would you feel if the opportunity presented itself and you were needed? Skills you had were perfectly suited to help. And because you kept your state of mind positive and strong and believed in yourself and believed in the future, you were able to play a key role into curing this disease for everyone. Would that create happiness for you? Not just the happiness from consuming the end result by getting a cure for yourself, but helping to produce it, helping to produce a cure for millions. So everyone who is cured in the future has you to thank. How would that make you feel? Is that something you'd want to be prepared for? More importantly, is that something you'd regret if you couldn't be a part of? I ask you this because I think that opportunity has come. After my discussion with Dr. Sabog, I've realized there are many more opportunities in front of us than we may have realized, and more will be coming very soon. And we need to be ready to play our part. If you don't know who Dr. Sabog is, our guest today, he is an ophthalmologist specializing in the vitreous macula and retina. He is a graduate of Columbia and Harvard, uh, an author of three books, also 76 peer-reviewed articles. His most recent major publication is a 953-page textbook on vitreous considered the definitive reference on the subject. He delivers lectures throughout the world. In 2019, he will deliver a keynote lecture to the European Ophthalmology Society. He's a recipient of many awards. Uh, he continues active engagement in both basic and clinical research, pioneering an innovative, new, and significantly safer version of the vitrectomy available to many who were previously denied the procedure. And we have quite the informative, insightful, and hopeful discussion to play for you. So without further ado, it is my honor to present to you our discussion just recorded a few days ago. I hope you enjoy it and feel free to discuss it in the comments below. Well, welcome, Dr. Sabag. Uh, thank you very much for joining our podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, well, we're really looking forward to uh, our discussion today. There's, you know, there's so much confusion and anxiety and hopelessness sometimes surrounding this condition, and uh, we're really looking forward to any clarifications or reasons for optimism that you can offer. 
but uh, before we get started, I thought it would be nice for the audience to get to know you a little bit more and a little bit more about your background. And so I want to make sure I have this right. Would it be correct to say you are an ophthalmologist specializing in the vitreous retina and macula? Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So what would you say initially got you interested in the eyes in general and, and more specifically those, those parts of the eye? Well, when I was in medical school at uh, Columbia University in New York, um, I was more attracted to the surgical subspecialties than the medical subspecialties. Mm -hmm. And I carefully looked at each one and ultimately chose eye surgery as the, um, the field that I wished to pursue throughout my career. And I learned a few things along the way that I didn't realize at first. The, the first was that ophthalmology is actually a blend of both medicine and surgery. In fact, surgery is a minor percentage of the amount of work that is done to treat the eye. Uh, the second byproduct was that uh, whereas you limit yourself to a certain group of people, for example, a pediatrician just treats children, an obstetrician gynecologist just treats women, in ophthalmology we treat everybody from children to um, elderly uh, individuals and uh, both sexes and inactive people as well as active people. It's really a very nice blend of patient population. Um, it's also a very high-tech field. Uh, instrumentation is developed constantly that improves the way that we diagnose and treat diseases, and that's a very exciting, active uh, area. Yeah. And then lastly uh, was the realization that so much of medicine is dedicated to trying to prevent the inevitable, which means that in a hundred years, everybody walking the earth today will be no longer. Yet nobody has to die blind. And that seems like a very laudable pursuit to which I've dedicated my life. It's a very honorable pursuit. I like what you're saying about how most specialties or a lot of specialties are focused on you know, one group or, you know, one condition, but yeah, we all have eyes. It's, you know, one thing that we, that we all have. And it's something that you don't really realize how important your vision is until you start, you know, losing certain aspects of it and, you know, what that can, uh, you know, do to your life and the impact that that can have, because we sort of take it for granted. Um, so I, at one, at some point you obviously started coming across people who were suffering from what they were probably just calling, you know, just floaters in their eyes. When did you start taking it more seriously and start deciding that you wanted to be a part of the innovation and, and helping people to actually, uh, you know, get rid of them? Well, um, I, for many years, was guilty of what many people suffering from vitreous floaters experience, and that is relatively callous disregard by medical professionals. Mm. They don't take seriously the degree to which the vitreous floaters impact patients' ability to see and function and uh, their uh, well-being. Um, so I, like everybody else, said, listen, uh, there's no disease because basically if you check out the eye and determine that there are no holes or tears or detachments, nothing is bleeding, you tell the patient they don't have a disease and uh, they'll just have to live with the 
symptoms that they're experiencing because it isn't a problem and nothing should be done. But about 10 or 12 years ago, I encountered a few patients who flew from California to either Florida or Virginia to undergo laser treatments for this condition. And they went back and forth a few times for each eye and paid large sums of money out of pocket because insurance doesn't cover laser treatments and were more unhappy afterwards than before. And I had to take these people seriously. I recall vividly one was a school teacher and the others were also responsible individuals who were so seriously bothered by their condition that they were willing to make those trips back and forth cross country multiple times and pay relatively large sums of money and were still unhappy afterwards. And so I treated those patients with a vitrectomy and the results were spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, in those days, the type of vitrectomy that we did uh, was more involved. The instruments were larger, sutures were involved. It was a bigger deal. The advent of sutureless micro-incision vitrectomy surgery enabled me to get increasingly comfortable and begin to offer this to number a greater number of uh, patients. So that was the second I suppose you would say um, iteration or revolution in my approach to patients with uh, this condition. The third and actually most important was the development of diagnostic methodologies with which I could quantify the severity of the condition. And that enabled me to distinguish between mild, moderate, and severe cases. And it enabled me to get more comfortable offering vitrectomy surgery to patients who had severe cases, but conversely, it enabled me to more comfortably tell somebody, no, you don't really qualify for surgery because your disease is, that, is not that severe. And it's not my impression or opinion. It's supported by facts and objective quantitative assessment. And that does two things. One, it relieves the patients who don't have severe cases to understand that in comparison to other people, they're, they're not that badly off. Sure. But secondly, it enables them to feel like I'm not making a personal judgment of them as people and declaring that they do not deserve this treatment and that they're doomed to suffer forever because there's, there's a lot of that psychology that's wrapped up in all of this. But rather, when the numbers speak for themselves, it's easier for people to accept their situation and uh, to cope because coping is an important aspect of all of this. Absolutely. That Yeah, that, that, that's a, an amazing thing to be able to have. And first of all, to be able to you know, recognize the way that you might have seen patients who uh, talked about this before, but then also seeing the lengths they were willing to go to or go through to be able to find some sort of relief, even if there wasn't much of a promise of it, and then to uh, start offering things to help these patients. So I, I personally really appreciate that uh, myself. And um, the the uh, measurement you came up with to be able to determine severity, as far as you know, are you the first one to have an official, like, objective you know, quantifiable way to be able to measure severity like this? Well, yes, in terms of a, a common visual function, 
Um, we're the first to measure contrast sensitivity function in uh, various conditions, not just in this condition, but um, there are others who've measured other indices of light scattering, and I predict that you'll see more and more different technologies coming out to measure the effects of light bouncing off of these structures in the vitreous body as a quantitative index of severity, and uh, there'll be a variety of different conditions. But as far as contrast sensitivity function is concerned, I believe to the best of my knowledge that we're the first to do that on a broad basis in uh, hundreds of uh, patients. That's fantastic. Uh, well, thank you for that. We, we uh, uh, definitely want to, to move on to some uh, more uh, questions about eye floaters in general, uh, but first, um, I do have a very serious question for you. Um, I was going through your website, and first of all, is it true that you, uh, you are a golfer? Well, uh, I don't think I would insult true golfers <laughs> with uh, an affirmative answer to that question, but uh, I try. <laughs> it's, it's a hobby you enjoy, it seems like. Um, were you able to catch the, uh, the PGA Championship this past week? I did see some of it, yes, indeed. So here's the important question. Is Tiger back? Did you see how, how well he performed? Yeah, I, I was impressed by his uh, return to uh, glory, so to speak. Sure. Um, I think that one of the things that we have to all consider is uh, the impact of age mm -hmm. on the human body. And um, I think that uh, time will tell because to sustain the level of play that we saw sure. is not an easy feat. And at the age of 42, I believe he is. Yep. Um, that's going to be quite difficult. So we'll see. Yeah, we will. Um, yeah, golf is, is something that's important to me. If, if uh, you had a chance to listen to uh, the first podcast, uh, it was through golf that really the depression set in because I was taking golf very seriously. I used to play competitively when I was a, when I was a junior, and I wanted to see if I could potentially go professional as an adult. I was getting to that level. And uh, what eye floaters, the way that they've affected me and with, with that, you know, passion of mine specifically, it makes it uh, very, you know, much uh, unenjoyable, you know, to be out on a beautiful golf course and the distractions with uh, these things moving around in my eyes. And so uh, it's just one of, you know, those areas that reminds me like that's, you know, where I want to be if I was able to find a cure for myself in the future. So. And that's, that's, that's a common phenomenon that I've heard from many patients who uh, have been so severely afflicted by their vitreous floaters that they curtail outdoor activities such as camping or boating or skiing or, in your case, golf, uh, because the increased levels of ambient light highlight the uh, structures within the vitreous body that are creating the shadows on the retina. And so people tend to avoid bright light situations. Uh, many of the patients who I have treated were able to return to those outdoor activities uh, and very happy to do so. Well, uh, that is something that would uh, definitely uh, give some hope to some people to hear. So part of what we're trying to do with the eye floaters action movement is we've sort of broken up what our goals are into phases. And in phase one, our main objective is to understand as much as we possibly can about vitreous floaters and be able to identify if there is a possible cure for everyone. Um, and so that takes a lot of education. That takes a lot of learning. So we want to see if you can help give us some insight um, and answer some questions for us to help us learn a little bit more. So 
One thing that's very hard to find, do you know how many people, either in the country or in the world, suffer from some type of vitreous floaters? Yes, there, there is one study, which is not a good study, but it is a study that uh, conducted a survey by smartphone of 670 or so, I can't remember the exact number, but in the 600s of uh, responders. Uh, who were asked the question, do you have floaters? And uh, s about two-thirds said that they did. And wow. about one-third said that the floaters um, interfered with their function. Wow. And that, that was the extent of the uh, study. Not a lot of detail, and uh, it's not very scientific because there's a selection bias. Uh, I don't think any of the people were, un were older than 50 years of age. And that's by selection of smartphone users. Elderly sure. people don't use smartphones as readily as uh, younger people. And so um, it limits the applicability of the results to the general population. But I can tell you that um, in the elderly population, uh, the phenomenon of posterior vitreous detachment is very common. Estimates have, again, uh, suggested that be, after the age of 65, two out of three people have a posterior vitreous detachment. And the symptom that results from a posterior vitreous detachment is floaters. Those are the people who present for evaluation to rule out any pathology, meaning retinal breaks or retinal detachment that can be associated with the posterior vitreous detachment. Uh, but they do have floaters and the severity of their floaters varies, and, uh, but they all have some degree of floaters. Sure. So it sounds like even though that wasn't necessarily a scientific poll, uh, that this might be something that more people deal with than, than we might have known. Yes, and I think that the take-home message is we need studies. We need to get data with which to answer the question that you posed. And there are epidemiologic studies of different diseases in different populations. There's one in Australia, there's one in Wisconsin. These are well-established databases. And they look at different diseases of the eye, but they've not looked at floaters. And so perhaps one of the byproducts of this movement will be to raise awareness and consciousness and get those epidemiologic uh, research centers to look at the phenomenon of vitreous floaters as part of their analysis of uh, disease prevalence in different populations. I mean, that would be ideal. That's definitely what we're trying to aspire to. Why would you say there hasn't been enough of this research so far, enough attention given to this? I think it's the same uh, answer as we touched upon earlier. It's not been considered a disease. It's not been considered worthy of uh, consideration. And um, much of the work that I've done has been directed in towards understanding how these structures impact vision, why they make patients so unhappy, and uh, enable the definitive diagnosis of disease, uh, defining the disease. And that's the reason that I employ the term and will be promoting in my writing and in my speaking, the term vision-degrading myodysopsia. 
Unfortunately, it's not the kind of thing that just rolls off <laughs> your tongue, but it is very precise insofar as describing um, a disease that results from the vitreous body. Uh, uh, myodysopsia is a derivative from Greek, and it's a term that's used to refer to floaters. And vision degrading refers to the fact that sometimes when they're severe, it can degrade contrast sensitivity function and impact vision. So I think uh, coining a term like that will, will help formalize the condition as a disease that has concrete criteria with which to make the diagnosis and enable its acceptance and therefore stimulate studies such as the epidemiologic ones that we have uh, touched upon a moment ago, mm -hmm. but also the development of uh, better, less invasive, and uh, um, more effective uh, treatments for this condition, and ultimately prevention, because the evolution of therapeutics in medicine typically begins with nothing when we don't understand a disease. And that's how many patients with vitreous floaters have been treated, uh, with nothing. When we start to understand a disease, typically the first thing that we do is operate on it. And that's true everywhere um, in, in the body. Um, as we begin to understand a disease better, we can replace surgery with pharmacotherapy, so antibiotics and other medications that, are, that have been developed uh, have uh, enabled uh, medical treatments which uh, uh, obviate the need for uh, surgery. But if we truly understand a disease in its most fundamental basis, then we can develop strategies to prevent it from ever happening. So that, that leads perfectly to something that uh, I've been wondering about for, uh, you know, since I've, I got them. The first thing, you know, that I tried doing after I got them, and basically everything you read online just tells you how uh, it sucks, you're going to deal with it forever, just give up and lose hope. And my response was, you know, there has to be some correlation between the body and either environmental factors or nutritional factors. So I started uh, going on like a juicing uh, you know, cleanse and just started eating extremely healthy and getting as much sleep as possible. And I was convinced that it was something in my lifestyle that caused this. And so I don't know if this is where you were leading necessarily, and maybe there needs to be a lot more research on this, but theoretically speaking, if this is something um, you can do, do you believe that there, there will, we'll eventually find some correlation between, you know, either lifestyle, nutrition, general health, um, that could explain why some may get this earlier than others or more severely than others? Is there some connection, you think? It's possible, but I think that you're um, missing a very important and unique aspect of the eye, and that is that on a daily basis for many hours, light traverses the various structures within the eye. And I think that there is an interaction between the photons that enter the eye and the molecules that uh, it encounters en route to the retina for, for photoreception and for vision to begin that contribute, in my opinion, to the changes that we see uh, with aging and in different disease states. So typically, all disease is a combination of a genetic predisposition, and environmental factors. 
And we need to better understand the genetics of how the eye is built, in particular the vitreous body, and what particular environmental factors can influence the structures that in turn will influence the function and create uh, various different uh, diseases. So that in this case, it may well be a good idea to use supplements and the kinds of things that you were talking about insofar as uh, stimulating uh, the production uh, and increasing the levels of antioxidants within the eye because those could mitigate against the kinds of changes that I am hypothesizing occur when light traverses the various structures with, within the eye. But I don't have any data to that effect, and a great deal of research needs to be done before I can recommend any form of systemic therapy, meaning antioxidant therapy or any other nutritional supplementation, uh, with the objective of mitigating against the structural changes in the vitreous body that result in the uh, phenomenon of vitreous floaters. So I cannot make that recommendation because it's all hypothetical. Sure. There's no data whatsoever to, to support that. Um, it makes sense, but uh, all that really does for us is give us direction to do research to find out. And um, pending the results, I do not recommend any form of therapy, but believe that uh, down the road when we understand the interplay of genetics and environment and what I described as light traversing the eye, uh, we'll have better strategies to, to treat this. Because, um, for example, the second leading cause of vitreous floaters after the age-related posterior vitreous detachment that I alluded to earlier is myopia, meaning eyes that are too long that create nearsightedness in patients. And in that setting, there are structural changes in the vitreous body that are unusual given the patient's relatively young age. And in our patient population, the mean age of uh, individuals with floaters from myopia, so-called myopic vitreopathy, is uh, in the early 40s, 41 years of age, in comparison to the other group of individuals, those afflicted with a posterior vitreous detachment, their mean age is in the early 60s. So, so it's not the same answer for the different subgroups of individuals, um, and the genetics have a great uh, role in this. Uh, we know myopia is a genetic condition, and so the other structural changes that accompany myopia um, are important in getting a better understanding of what's going on so that we can develop strategies such as the ones you were alluding to earlier. This is wonderful information so far. Uh, we definitely appreciate this. So yeah, let's move on to, I want to understand a little bit more about the VMR Institute um, and some of the things that you uh, guys do there. So could you give me a, a brief um, kind of, uh, you know, I guess bio on this, uh, this organization, you know, uh, when and why you guys founded it, what you guys specialize in? Yes, the VMR Institute was founded in 1986, and uh, that's the year that I completed my postgraduate studies at Harvard. 
and moved from Boston to Southern California. And it is uh, dedicated to diseases and laser therapy and injections and surgery of the vitreous, macula, and retina. Uh, there are six different subspecialties within the eye. Retina is the uh, largest one. And uh, for the past 32 years, um, I've dedicated my uh, work solely to conditions of vitreous macula and retina so that I don't do cataract surgery or prescribe glasses or anything like that. And part of our mission has been um, patient care, of course, but also research and the development of new concepts of disease and uh, from that, deriving new approaches to therapies and testing them uh, in, in various uh, uh, situations. And that's the reason that it was relatively easy to develop the kind of information that we're discussing um, in the domain of vitreous floaters, because we've done this before for other diseases of the vitreous, macula, and retina, and we're uh, quite well equipped, um, at least intellectually. Uh, we collaborate with people at the local universities, currently at UCLA, but we've done collaborative research with uh, Harvard, with people in Australia, with people at UC Davis. Uh, basically, the world has become a much closer place and uh, the ability to collaborate with laboratories and specialists uh, all over the world is much greater today than it was uh, 30 years ago. But uh, it's been a very exciting journey and I think that we've moved the frontier um, a little bit farther and uh, improved. I, I can tell you that the way I manage many diseases today is extremely different from the way I managed it 30 years ago, and uh, it's a testament to the research and development and the kinds of things that we've been talking about in, in this domain, but in many other domains. And so we're primarily a clinical care facility, but a very close second is our research and academic pursuit, trying to understand these diseases better and develop better ways to treat them. That's fantastic. I, I love the emphasis on, on research and constantly trying to learn and apply new things so that you can offer better treatment going forward. I'm assuming through that research and through that um, experimentation is where you developed this, um, what appears to be a much safer version of the vitrectomy. Um, can you explain a little bit more about the vitrectomies that you offer and how they uh, differ from what most people are used to? As I alluded to earlier, um, the second stimulus to my approach to patients with vitreous floaters was the development of um, uh, small, small gauge uh, instrumentation that enabled us to enter the eye without having to suture the holes that we created when entering the eye. The operations became much shorter and the healing time uh, decreased substantially. The pain factor was much less. It's just in general um, a much better tolerated procedure. In terms of how I modified vitrectomy uh, to address this particular condition, I took into consideration uh, 
three different aspects that were potential hazards, one being infection, the second being um, cataract formation, and the third being retinal detachments. So I slightly modified the entry uh, into the eye as well as the exit from the eye to mitigate against infection. And uh, we've never had a case of post-operative infection, um, uh, a testament, I think, to the uh, approach. The second area of uh, uh, retinal detachments, uh, when a young person does not have a posterior vitreous separation away from the retina, and recall that this is the condition that afflicts the majority of the people who complain of floaters, it's sudden onset, the vitreous collapses, which it does in almost everybody if they live long enough, but that is the most common cause of the sudden onset of floaters, and in some instances, patients can't adapt, they can't cope, and um, in that circumstance, the removal of the central vitreous, including the posterior vitreous cortex, which used to be attached to the retina and is now floating in front of the retina, is a relatively straightforward procedure. But in young people who do not have a posterior vitreous detachment, it was previously believed that it's necessary to induce surgically right. a posterior vitreous detachment during the operation. I took issue with that because I think that increases the risk of tearing the retina, and I didn't think it was necessary because I didn't think that was why the people were complaining of, uh, of symptoms. And so in my series, I never induce a posterior vitreous detachment in young individuals who do not already have it. And as a result, we've been able to reduce the incidence of retinal tears and detachments from something on the order of 20 to 30 percent to 1.5 percent. Only three out of 195 cases of limited vitrectomy for vision-degrading myodysopsia have experienced a retinal tear. That was identified and that was treated and retinal detachment was prevented. In three other cases, a retinal detachment occurred. In one case, two weeks after vitrectomy. In another, 10 months after vitrectomy. And in the third, 14 months after vitrectomy. And it's arguable whether that last one is indeed related to the vitrectomy, but I share it with the world for full transparency. But still, that's 1.5% which is much, much less than 30%. So I think that um, supports my approach in not inducing a posterior vitreous detachment uh, because it's not necessary. The third complication that I sought to uh, avoid or at least mitigate is the formation of cataracts. And it's been reported that following a vitrectomy in a year or two, the incidence of cataract surgery is on the order of 80 to 90 percent. Right. So I chose to leave a few millimeters of vitreous gel behind the lens to serve as a repository for antioxidants that are produced by the eye uh, to mitigate against free radical uh, effects on the lens and prevent the formation of cataracts. And so in two separate studies, the uh, approach I just described um, has proven to be correct. In a head-to-head -head comparison of our results with those obtained at the University of Amsterdam, where a posterior vitreous detachment is created and extensive 
removal of vitreous is undertaken, at 24 months post-op, their incidence of cataract surgery was 87%. Our incidence in this preliminary study was 35%. The mean time following the, develop, the, following the vitrectomy to the development of cataracts to the point of needing surgery was on the order of seven months in Amsterdam, and ours was 13 months. So we had much less cataract surgery, and it took longer for cataracts to develop uh, before needing cataract surgery. In our more recent expanded study of 195 cases, there were, I believe, 122 phacic individuals, meaning that they had their natural lens. And with a mean follow-up of 32 months, our incidence of cataract surgery was 16.9%. So I believe by not inducing a PVD surgically and by leaving some gel vitreous behind the lens, we've successfully reduced the risks of retinal detachments and uh, also cataract formation to a very acceptable level, especially if you consider the uh, benefits and um, success in um, achieving uh, floater-free vision for these individuals. So based on what you've described there, do you see this as being a, a first step in something more? Because I think some people will listen to the results that you're having with a lot of excitement and think that, wow, maybe this could be something that I can actually try when I was constantly told that my, you know, my other options were too dangerous. Some younger patients, though, are often told that their uh, floaters are located very close to their retina. And so if you're leaving... From, if I understand correctly, a little bit of vitreous behind the retina and behind the lens, is it possible that for younger patients that this may not be the best option for them? Or do you find sometimes you can? That's a very good question. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I have had patients like that. Um, in addition to examining the eye and performing ultrasound of the vitreous body and the vitreoretinal relation, we also perform optical coherence tomography, which images the area just in front of the macula. That's the area that you... Um, referred to a moment ago mm -hmm. uh, as uh, sometimes harboring opacities that are close to the retina. Right. And I have been able to go in those cases close enough to remove that vitreous without inducing a posterior vitreous detachment and alleviating the symptoms in those individuals. So it is possible to do that without uh, traumatizing the retina or any other structures. And uh, um, remove the opacities and uh, improve the vision. Wow. Uh, well, that's great to hear. Obviously, everything's a case-by-case -case basis, but uh, um, even just knowing that there's uh, some possibility can be something that uh, can definitely bring some hope. Okay, so continuing our conversation about uh, the results that you've uh, been having, and it's good to know that there might be some options even for younger patients because we're sort of stuck um, is, is what it feels like at times where it may not be clinically severe enough or located in the right area. Um, so it's good to know that there, there may be something there. So this leads to my next question, which is, do you see more progress happening with this, uh, with this procedure? Do you see it becoming something that becomes even safer or is your research group more focusing on other styles of treatment? Like you mentioned before, something that could be preventative. What, what have you guys been focusing on? Well, um, <clears throat> our focus has been to um, 
continue to follow the patients and to continue to employ the diagnostic criteria that I described earlier in defining uh, vision-degrading myodysopsia as a disease. And uh, once we identify those individuals, we offer them this uh, limited vitrectomy. Uh, there is some talk about using 27-gauge instruments as opposed to 25. I personally don't believe that it's going to make the procedure any more effective or any safer, and so I'm personally not employing 27-gauge instrumentation. I have embarked upon collaborations with uh, researchers at the University of Ghent in Belgium, and uh, we are going to forge a collaboration with industry to try to develop new methodologies uh, employing um, novel lasers, not YAG lasers, but different lasers with a different approach in an attempt to um, uh, develop an effective laser therapy. Uh, because there's no proof that YAG lasers work, and there's, there's a lot of reasons, uh, theoretically, why they shouldn't work. Um, but better lasers are out there, better approaches are out there, and so we're working with industry and universities to develop those uh, better laser therapies. Um, femtosecond is another form of laser that's superior to YAG laser that we're working with to try to develop uh, new treatment strategies. And then the last area that I'm interested in is the area of pharmacologic vitriolysis, that's drug therapy to alter the structure of vitreous. There is a drug that has been approved by the FDA and by the EU to induce a posterior vitreous detachment, and it may be possible to modify that drug or supplement that drug to uh, treat patients with uh, vitreous opacities that create the phenomenon of floaters. And so those are the areas that I think are uh, innovative and novel and may have uh, great promise in the future. I, I think that the surgery as we perform it is extremely safe, as I described earlier. And in our recent publication by the American Academy of Ophthalmology, we've shown that uh, at least using contrast sensitivity function as an outcome measure of efficacy, it's remarkably effective. In 139 consecutive cases who had abnormal contrast sensitivity function preoperatively, every single case was normal one week following limited vitrectomy and has remained normal for the months and years, sometimes four years, that we followed these patients and continue to follow them. So it's hard for me to imagine we're going to surgically get any better than that. So one more question personally about this. When you, we were talking earlier about the methods you use to uh, measure the severity uh, objectively, so you can tell for sure if someone has something that's worth operating on. Do you acknowledge that there could be some subjectivity in terms of severity where some patients may have uh, certain anxiety issues or mental health issues or they might have something that could be deemed less severe but in terms of how it could impact their life it could be more severe you know for them you know based on how it impacts them uh, directly do you have do you guys have some sort of flexibility with what you determine is someone you will or will not operate on based on other factors beyond uh, the methods you described for for measuring them Yes, you know, um, clinical medicine is not just a science, it's an art. 
and it does require flexibility and open-mindedness. But I don't usually deviate from the criteria that I described earlier because um, it's, it's complex sure. and I recognize the interplay of, of the body and the mind. I'm fully cognizant of that. Uh, so I can't really give you an answer that will cover all bases. It is done on an individual basis, and it is a difficult thing. When people are depressed and they have floaters, it's hard to know whether the floaters seem more significant because they're depressed or whether the opacities in their vitreous body that are creating the floaters are depressing them. And it's Not really sure. hard to separate those out. And so... Um, we recognize that that's a factor and we try to uh, integrate it into our approach. So based on everything you were referring to with the, with the research, if you could answer, and I understand that um, it's hard to tell at this point, but in, from a pure just gut confidence level, how confident are you that we can see an eventual non-surgical cure to eye floaters? I think that you're going to see a few different iterations. My prediction is that there will be better lasers that will help some people, not all people, and that that will reduce... Well, let me back up. You're probably going to see a wave of vitrectomies following acceptance of the groundbreaking work that we've done and uh, shown that it can be safe and effective so that I think you'll see a, a lot more vitrectomies being performed, and that's a good thing because it's safe and effective. But, um, and by the way, we've just completed a study looking at the cost effectiveness of this procedure, and it's superior to cataract surgery and retinal detachment surgery and amblyopia therapy. It's really a highly cost-effective uh, uh, procedure. But after that wave, I think you, by then, maybe, I don't know, five, seven, eight years from now, there'll be superior treatments or alternative treatments, I should say, uh, with novel approaches to lasers uh, for treatment. And then perhaps eight to 12 years from now, there should be some form of pharmacotherapy that will be available to dissolve these structures and uh, reduce the phenomenon of vitreous floaters. Yeah, well, that's, that's great to hear from, from you specifically. Um, you know, we can read all sorts of things online and speculate, but uh, when that comes from uh, someone with your background, uh, that's, that's really good to hear. Is there anything our audience can do to support the research that you guys are doing? Well, we have a foundation that uh, has been established to um, undertake research and development in a number of conditions. Uh, much of our activity uh, relates to vitreous floaters and the identification of vision-degrading myodysopsia and then its treatment. So they can certainly um, uh, visit our website and connect to the research foundation to learn more about the kinds of projects that we're undertaking and uh, if the information they seek is not there, they can contact me uh, directly via my email address. I'll be happy to communicate with uh, your listeners and um, support our work uh, financially so that we can develop better uh, and um, 
less invasive uh, treatments for this condition. That's wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, we'll definitely do all we can uh, to, to support what you guys are doing because, uh, yeah, we are very passionate about doing uh, something because there's very few people that um, even seem like are, you know, that they're taking it as a legitimate disease, as you were saying. And so that uh, the fact that you have that recognition is, uh, is amazing and we would definitely like to support that. So uh, before we let you go, if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd love to go through a few uh, listener questions real quick, uh, just to get your, your brief um, uh, you know, insight or explanation to some things that they might be dealing with and seeing what you think about that. Um, interestingly, one of, one of the questions you actually uh, addressed earlier and I wasn't expecting, uh, Rasa Malinaro was asking about the research that uh, Dr. Marie, basically the research about the femtosecond laser, that is something that you're saying is you know, show some promise and is a legitimate form of research that, that you are involved with somehow? Yes, I'm working with the um, <clears throat> manufacturers of the femtosecond laser, and we've already completed experiments in uh, animals, and we're uh, discussing a clinical trial in humans using the femtosecond laser to treat vitreous opacities that cause floaters. That's fantastic. Uh, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, Steve Schlicker uh, was mentioning that uh, three years ago uh, he was diagnosed uh, with a uh, dry eye syndrome and he was told to use a hot compressor three times a day, 20 minutes each day. And after doing so, he started developing eye floaters almost immediately so. He wanted to know if you thought there was any co correlation between using those uh, uh, hot you know, compressors. No, I do not believe there's any um, interaction. Okay. Um, uh, Ross, again, wanted to know if, uh, and I believe I asked you this question before when we were emailing back and forth, but basically if there is a clinical significance to the vitreous. Some people are worried that, you know, they read that if you take the vitreous out, that there are some protective properties that it has against if it's UV or whatever the case may be. Is there any concern that taking the vitreous out can leave you more susceptible to retinal damage or anything else in the future? Well, there's always been concern, but it's very hard to argue with the fact that vitreous has been excised for about 45 years now and um, its removal in the right circumstances is far better than leaving it in. Uh, it does have a role, primarily physiologic, in the management of oxygen, as oxygen metabolism, as we described before. But as I said, recognizing that and uh, developing strategies to mitigate against those effects can uh, mollify any untoward effects. And um, as we understand more and more about how the eye works and uh, how vitreous plays a role, uh, we'll be able to remove it, but perhaps replace it with artificial vitreous. There are people who are working on that as well. Uh, or just to uh, prevent the kinds of molecular changes that result in the structures that create the shadows that people see as floaters. That's another avenue of development that uh, will probably benefit from a better understanding. But the concerns that removing the vitreous today um, is going to create serious problems don't appear to um, um, 
have much merit because, as I said, vitreous has been removed for, for many years, and the two main problems that people were concerned about, cataracts uh, and glaucoma, um, it doesn't seem that the glaucoma is that big a deal. We don't get that much glaucoma. Yes, mm. there are some patients, but we don't get that much glaucoma after vitrectomy surgery. And as I said, um, we've reduced the incidence of cataract formation uh, following our vitrectomy. Now, admittedly, we've only followed our patients for a few years, and probably at year six or nine or whatever uh, down the road, they will have cataracts more than someone who did not have a uh, limited vitrectomy for vision-degrading myodysopsia. But let's face it, cataract surgery is one of the most successful operations in all of medicine. It's relatively easy, it's highly, highly reliable, and uh, has tremendous benefits to patients. So it's not the kind of thing that should be considered a really serious complication. It's manageable. Sure, okay. Uh, that's that's great to know. That's definitely something that's going to ease some people's concerns. Uh, last one here from Kalia. Uh, Hi, doctor. Is it true that doing sports like bodybuilding or rugby, any other high-impact sports where there's a lot of intensity can cause eye floaters? Only if it causes a vitreous detachment. And uh, enough people have played American football and rugby over the years so that if that were a real phenomenon, uh, we would probably know about it by now. So I, I don't think that there's scientific evidence to support that statement. Well, you have certainly given us a lot of uh, insight and uh, answers to some questions that uh, we've been asking in the online forums and communities for a long time. And I definitely think that uh, uh, there's going to be some chatter about this on the forums after this is released. So. Um, yeah, I'd like to just say, you know, personally, thank you again very much for your, your kindness and giving us your time and helping us out with this. And hopefully it's the beginning of a, you know, of a longer relationship where we can work together and help each other out. And uh, because we obviously have the same goal here of trying to give people, you know, clear vision back. So, um, yeah, thank you again very much. Uh, lastly, uh, if people want to get in contact with you, how would you suggest they, they do so with you or the VMR Institute? I would go and visit the VMR Institute website. It's just vmrinstitute.com. There's lots of information there concerning all types of conditions of the eye, primarily vitreous macula and retina, but there's, there's a lot of information on vitreous floaters as well. And let me just close by uh, thanking you for your interest and for reaching out. But also, I'd like to close by sharing the um, perspective that I began working on vitreous as a medical student primarily out of scientific and intellectual curiosity and I've pursued it because I find it to be a very fascinating structure but it's quite rewarding at uh, my age having worked with vitreous for four decades to now realize that all of the intellectual curiosity and the scientific pursuits that we've undertaken are uh, resulting in benefit to patients because we have many, many very, very happy people. And um, it's a result of coming full circle from science to clinical care. And it's a very gratifying thing. And uh, I'm happy to play a small role in all of this. Well, that's fantastic. And it, it looks like that small role will probably end up being something much, much bigger down the road. And I, I, I'm glad to hear that 
uh, you uh, have such care and concern for the patients you treat and, and really are invested in helping them, you know, regain their, their vision back and quality of life back in a lot of cases. And so, uh, yeah, again, thank you very much for all the hard work you've been doing, you and your, your institute and, and uh, what you guys have been um, contributing to this cause. And uh, like I said, yeah, I hope that we can communicate more going forward and we'd love to have you back on the show sometime in the future. Okay, thank you very much. Absolutely, we'll talk soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion and I hope you agree after listening. There is a very real opportunity here to do something really great. In the coming weeks and months, you will see that the plan we have to organize and mobilize sufferers of this terrible condition will be substantial. It's going to take a lot of work, but that's the decision we've made. And you have a decision to make as well. What will your role be? To sit and wait for a cure? Or to be useful, to be honorable, compassionate, to have it make a difference that you have lived and lived well? Spend some time pondering that. Come up with an answer in your mind and in your heart. Because your answer will make a very significant difference to the direction of this movement and the speed in which we find a cure. And rest assured, we will find a cure. So, you've, so if you'd like to commit to this movement and have the support of other people who are also committing to this, please find us on Facebook. You'll see the first post pinned to the very top titled, Are You Committed? It's a place where you'll see that many, many others have come on here and publicly expressed their commitment by simply commenting, I'm committed. You can find us on Facebook at iFloaters Action Movement. If you want to be a part of the eventual cure, part of the fight, please comment, I am committed on there and join our movement. Those who join us today will be leaders with us tomorrow. If you'd like to contact us directly, please email at efamcontact at gmail.com. That's E-F-A-M contact at gmail.com. So until next time, keep fighting and keep smiling. A little secret for you. Huddle up. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. To quote from Whitman, O oh me, O oh life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? Answer, that you are here that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be?